The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. So what I was hearing you say is that the only way to get better at something is to practice doing it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time that's it. I mean, for me, it's the repetition. And I feel like when you do it over and over again, obviously you become more confident, you become more competent, and then you're able to then share what it is that you have learned with other people. In this episode of Noggins and Neurons, Clinical Confidence through Clinical Competence Part 2, I continue my conversation with occupational therapist Andrea Reed. Before getting into the overview, I want to remind you about the official Noggins and Neurons trading cards. If you haven't heard about this, we now have the first all-star card of our favorite co-host, Pete Levine. The trading card is a great way to remember Pete and help keep Noggins and Neurons going. Follow the link in the show notes to order a preprint card for $15 donation and you can do this through February 28th of this year, 2022. Once they've been printed, the donation amount goes up a little bit to $20. The significance of trading cards might be lost on you if you haven't listened to the first batch of talks we did. So if you haven't checked those out, please do. Those chats are not only filled with rich information, By listening to our silliness, you'll come to understand why a trading card is the right choice for remembering Pete. Also, in part one of this two-part series, I mentioned that I will be giving a talk on mirror therapy at the Virtual Geriatric Summit. You can look for the sign-up link in the show notes, or I'll also drop that in the Noggins and Neurons Facebook group if you want to join me for that talk. Now on to this episode. Andrea and I talk about mentorship, learning environments, trying new interventions, and resiliency. Towards being resilient, we share our thoughts on coping in the moment by using the pause technique. 
Andrea finds this especially beneficial when receiving conflicting messages from others. We then talk about expanding the use of compassion and grace towards ourselves through the learning curves that never end. After all, we are in the midst of a lifelong learning experience. We tie in learning through professional study groups too because the literature supports them as a method towards achieving mastery. Andrea tells us about the adaptive equipment she's developed and that she's currently refining. And this is fun to hear about, especially because Pete and I spoke briefly about that in an earlier episode. We talk about a few more things, but I'm going to stop talking now so that you can get into the chat, and I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. I agree, connection is very important, and that is the perfect time to tie in something else that I thought of when you were talking about confidence using different modalities and and interventions and being able to choose them. And we have spoken about this before in our, uh, just our friendship conversations is mentorship. And what does that mean? And how do you provide it? And how do you know when you're getting it? And what do you do when you don't have it? Mentorship, that's a very big word. It just means so much um, because I feel like mentorship can happen in so many ways across so many, uh, across so many different uh, situations. Um, You know, I feel like when I have a student, yes, I'm mentoring that student, but that student is mentoring me too, because I'm learning new techniques. I'm learning, I'm learning how to be humble. I'm learning that we're people and that life happens and things happen. So I feel like that is a a, a small part of mentorship. I also think that our patients mentor us, especially our elder patients, because, you know, they've lived longer than we have and they know more than we do. And I think it's important that we remember that, you know, and not to get off the topic so much, but, you know, when we have patients that come in and they do have profound cognitive deficits um, and dementia, you know, dementia doesn't define that person and they still have so many qualities in some way. And so if we look at that as a mentorship, I think that's a gift. And sometimes I need to remember that for my own self, but are my boss mentors me? I mean, there's mentorship could go on and on in different ways. I think just each other talking like this or talking with other clinicians in general, we can learn so much. And I guess you just, you learn what you're wanting to soak in. And I think when we stop learning and stop accepting mentorship, then we're just being stagnant with our own selves. So I, I'm very open. I, I feel like learning goes on till we die. And I think it should. Sorry, that was a lot of information. <laughs> but that's how I feel. So that was amazing. So I was doing some research last night to prepare for this podcast. And there's an article titled transitioning from occupational therapy student to practicing occupational therapist first year of employment by Randy McComey and Meredith and Vaj. I hope I didn't chop those names up too terribly bad. I don't have access to the article. I did a, I tried to find it in so many ways, but I have the abstract and something really jumped out at me. And it said, 
having a mentor was related to high job mm -hmm. satisfaction and good clinical fit, fit. While supervising an occupational therapy assistant and low self-confidence were viewed as negative impact factors. And this is very interesting about uh, different people's perspectives on things and your perspective and the way that you find mentorship through some potentially challenging situations where you find opportunities for growth. You have to. I, I mean, I, I really believe that. I feel like not even just as a clinician, but as a person, if you're not willing to be open and learn new things and hear what other people have to say, then you're not going to go very far as a person. You might go far, you know, if you want to look at it monetarily, or you may go far as climbing that ceiling, but you're not going to go far to me as a person who can understand other people. Um, that's just kind of how I feel. You, ha you have to be open. It's so much more fun to be open. Not so much fun to be closed in. I mean, I love the relationships that I have formed. Oh my God, the, the people I work with uh, in my rehab setting. Oh my God. I mean, not only do I, I know some of them are, all of them are, I shouldn't say that, but some people are just so strong in certain areas. And I, I feel jealous sometimes. I'm like, oh, I wish I had that knowledge. But as far as just people and like just communication and knowing that they're, we're mentoring each other probably every day in different ways. And it's really an awesome thing. I don't know. I love it. I'm learning right now. You're being my mentor since I've never done a podcast before. Oh my God. I've been so nervous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Should we take that in the literal sense? No, because it isn't literal. <laughs> just, just the word that came to mind first. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It's nerve wracking putting yourself out there in front of people. Oh my gosh. Yes. And we are putting ourselves in front of people, even in, at our jobs, you know, we show up every day. And that's another thing that I would like to talk about, circle back around to when mm -hmm. you're talking about learning new interventions. So it sounds like you work in a very nurturing environment, but not everyone does. And everyone has yeah. different levels of self-perception that play a role in confidence. And mm -hmm. so it can be hard to try a new intervention in front of other, like the very first time in front of other people who are listening, watching, observing, and what if it doesn't go the way that you intend it to go? What if it doesn't work? You know, all of these questions that come up in your mind before you actually try something. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I've gotten to a place in my life where I'm very open. I feel like I've been open for the most part most of my life, but I'm more open now. And if it doesn't go well, oh, well, <laughs> I'm a human. <laughs> so what can I do better next time? And that's genuine. It's not like, oh, well, I don't care. It's just, okay, well, now this is a learning experience and I need to, I need to tighten up over here. I need to do this better. Um, but I think that This does happen sometimes. I know. I'm, I lost my train of thought when I went from one thing to the other. Um, when something doesn't go well, try, trying in front of other people? Yes, trying in front of other people. I mean, again, for me, I go back to, you know, the environment. 
really does play a role. I feel like sometimes if you are not comfortable, if the people are not paying attention, if they don't really value you, that can really affect your mindset and how you give a presentation or how things go. However, that that's real life. And there's going to be times where you are in front of people at work, at home, in social settings where they don't like you. And it's how you overcome that and how you move forward. And I think that it's important for us to teach our students that, you know, you're going to get up, get up and you're going to give a presentation or you're going to present something. And if you're confident within yourself and you do your very best, uh, then, you know, what more can you ask? It's, it's the other people's problem if they don't, uh, if they don't like you or, you know, a good person is going to give you critical, like good feedback and positive criticism or good criticism. And it's, and you need to take that and run with it. But it is hard. It's, it's hard for me even to this day sometimes to, you know, I get nervous presenting or, but I think when you practice and you know what you're talking about, that just improves your, your confidence level. And I think it also goes back to using people around you as a mentor. You may, they may not know they're your mentor, but if you're extracting information and you're talking to people, talking to patients about whatever it is that you're going to be doing, that's more information that can help improve what you're outputting to work people or to family members. So what I was hearing you say is that the only way to get better at something is to practice doing it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the time that's it. I mean, for me, it's the repetition. And I feel like when you do it over and over again, obviously you become more confident, you become more competent, and then you're able to then share what it is that you have learned with other people. Yeah, there are some words of wisdom right there. So repetition is not just for motor recovery. It's for all kinds of learning. And the other thing I was hearing you talk about, like this is my perception of what you were saying. You were talking about reflective practice, essentially looking at mm -hmm. what, what you did, like what was the interaction like, regardless of if it was with a colleague or a client or a student that you're mentoring, um, how did the interaction go? What went well? What didn't go well? What could we do differently next time? What could we do that would help us get the results we're looking for? Is this just not the right intervention? Is just is this something we should set aside for a while? So I think those are all important points to the learning process when you're practicing something new, because we always know that practice makes progress, doesn't have to make perfect. Um, I think we should get rid of that word perfect. I know. I think it has gotten rid of I've, I've seen that, that saying in the school system that practice makes progress. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off. That word perfect takes so much pressure off because no one's ever going to be perfect. So why not just say progress because we're moving forward? That's essentially what it is. Pete always said, don't make perfect the enemy of the good. Hmm. Well, there's a reason for that. Hmm. Um, I think asking questions and feeling comfortable asking questions throughout the whatever you're learning is really important. And I think us asking our patients and students, 
do you understand this? Are you comfortable with this? And letting them, if they're not comfortable with something, okay, like you said, what can we do better? What can I do to make this easier for you? Or what can we do to make this easier for you? Because my way doesn't mean it's the way. And I think we get caught up in that too, when we're teaching students and when we're teaching um, patients, new techniques and modifications, you know, and sometimes I have to remind myself, like a patient may tell me, well, this is how I do it at home. Okay. Well, a, is it safe? They have a way that's better show me because maybe I can show another patient, you know, um, I think it's important to remember that, you know, their way might be the better way they know themselves more than anybody else. So asking questions and feeling out how they're feeling about what you're teaching them is really important. And I think asking yourself the same question, you're learning something new. We need to know, does it work? Did it work with our patient? If it didn't, then what did I do that didn't work? Was it me? Was it the environment? Was it the patient? Was it, was it the actual piece of equipment that we are using that just wasn't that great? There's pieces of equipment that sometimes work better than others. Sockades sometimes have that foamy piece on the outside. I personally don't prefer it. So maybe one without it, or there's the softer sockades versus the harder ones. Some work better than others. Um, you know, a breacher may have a grippy part and some don't. I mean, there's just so many different things that, you know, some people prefer over the other. So it's just kind of perfecting um, whatever it is that you're learning and then making sure it works with that particular patient because it works with one patient or one student or even something you're trying doesn't mean it's going to work across the board. So I think having that time to reflect on what you have practiced, how it went, and there's always a way to make something better, I feel like, at certain points in, in time and in life. So. I agree. I agree. And so you were talking about finding ways to have that confidence. And a lot of times when we are interacting, there's that energetic component where you can feel an energy mm -hmm. that doesn't seem to mesh with your own. Sometimes we read body language and that's always based on our own experiences and our own perceptions. And we don't always know what another person is thinking through their body language and we can interpret it in a way that um, is different than what they're intending. Mm -hmm. So there are so many factors that come into play and my question for you is, as a practitioner, you, you have, you're seasoned. Now I would say you're a seasoned practitioner. You're a person who has some life experience under your belt. What is a strategy that you use to help yourself feel more confident in a situation, like right in that moment when you're interpreting all of these things that may be sending you some signals like, oh, this person's not liking me. They're not receptive to what I'm saying. I'm feeling nervous. How do you manage that within yourself? And how, how does all of that self-management give you more confidence? And in, in what ways does it help you feel more confident? That's a very good question. Um, I think it goes back to remembering that we're just human and that we're not robots. We're not perfect. And there are so many times I'm sure I know where I've been in a situation with either the 
patient or the family members. And I do have moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, did I convey this correctly? And you start to have self-doubt, like, you know, what if this person knows more about this than I do? And there's very well, there are lots of people who have family members that are OTs, PTs, nurses, doctors, things like that. But I think it's kind of, if you have a chance in that moment, especially when you're working with patients, oftentimes I do have time to just kind of take a minute to myself in my head and be, and, and just say, okay, this is not the end all be all. Like what, what can I change in this moment? Whether it's my, the way I'm explaining something, my demeanor, maybe I just need to sit down next to that person and just take a quiet moment for 15 or 30 seconds, maybe touch their hand or something and just give that time to soak in. What can I do a little differently? Or why is this not working? Um, I don't know. I, I honestly, that's a hard question. I don't know that I a hundred percent have the answer. I just think it comes back to like a mindfulness and a self-talking in my head in that moment. Like, okay. Cause things don't always go the way we plan. And does it make, does that does not define you as a practitioner at all ever because it's moments and everybody has moments every day in life, no matter what we do. So sometimes it, it means getting through the session the best that I can and going back also and just taking time to be like, okay, what did I do? Or, you know, cause there's times you come out of a session or a care plan meeting and you're like, you know, that just did not go well. And it really does mess with your confidence. It makes me feel awful. I feel like this big, I feel so small, but I think it's going back and remembering like, you know what, this just happened. And I, there's nothing I can do about it in this moment, except for move forward, figure out what maybe I could do better next time and be okay with it. Just be okay with it. Because if you're not, you're not going to be able to like, you're not gonna be able to move forward with other things. It'll just stick in your head and mess you up. And for me, I just have to like own it, fix it if I can and move forward and, and be okay with that because we're people. Yeah. have a little self-compassion. Yeah. We going back to giving people grace. Um, my daughter, Lily, who's only 12 is learning right now how to give herself more grace because when one negative thing enters her mind, even though she did a hundred positive things, that's all she can focus on is that negative thing. And it messes her up for the day. It legitimately does. And I think we are very hard on ourselves as practitioners and we do not give ourselves enough grace. We are doing great things for people and they know it, families know it. And we have to remember that nothing is ever going to be perfect, but it's okay. That's just, you have to be okay with yourself. As long as you're doing the right thing and you're being ethical and you're not doing anything that would harm somebody, then you have to be okay with where you are in that moment. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And mm -hmm. So finding that grace and that compassion to give to yourself, what I'm learning through life, because I, I think my brain works similar to Lily's, like it loves to focus on that one thing. So the more that that grace and compassion is turned inside to oneself, the more for me personally, the more I'm able to give grace and compassion to others. And I find uh, better connections that way, like the relationships that I have are growing um, more deeply and the connections that I make with people are more meaningful. I have a feeling that there's a lot of people out there 
that feel a lot of the same way, but they're afraid to just be open and be okay with it. And I do think when you give grace and compassion to others, you find that people are willing to open up more about their experiences. And then you're like, wow, okay, I'm not alone. Like this is happening to over here. This is happening over here. And, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just be a little bit open not to get off topic, but my daughter, Lily does have, you know, she's has a lot of struggles with mental health. And I, for so long isolated myself because I was like, there's nobody else that could be going through what I'm going through. And I didn't talk to people and I wasn't having fun and it was not who I was. And once I decided to just be open within parameters that are fair to her, because it's not my life, it's her life. I opened this beautiful box, this beautiful world of people who are struggling the same way I am, the same way their children are. And it changes how you feel. It changes how you react to situations and how you feel about yourself. And it makes you feel human again. And I take that with me in my daily life and at work because it just makes you a better person and a real person and raw. And I, I feel like you make connections better when you're raw and open. And I feel like that can form great bonds that can provide excellent therapy, even if it isn't through a modality or a technique, but relationships help therapy grow and progress. And I just try to remember those things. It's just, you have to. I agree. And that actually is an occupational therapy modality that we learn about in school. We take courses on therapeutic use of self. And that is exactly what you're doing. And, you know, it's really knowing those boundaries, like who you're with and how much to share. And when you share a piece of yourself with a person, it does, it can very much build that connection, that rapport and that trust that is needed for a person to feel safe to try what you're asking them to try. It also gives more confidence because if you feel like there's other people in the same situation, then you're like, okay, this just kind of changes how you feel, just how your, your body language is, how your facial expressions are. And I want to say too, when you're talking about like how if I'm having, if I'm struggling in a situation, like how do I kind of, how do I get out of that? I think that's important too, to make sure that you're not, that we're giving ourselves grace and compassion when we are finding ourselves, you know, not as confident in a certain situation, because we also have to see other patients and we don't want, we don't want to dwell on something that's going to prevent our other patients from moving forward in their treatment session. It's not fair to them. So I think the quicker we can self-talk and just figure out how to move forward after anything, whether it be a negative experience or just a, kind of a little bit of a, a flaw or a setback. I think that just makes it easier to, I think it shows growth and it makes it easier to just move on with the next person and do a better job for that person. 100%. I agree with you. Can I share a personal story? Yes, okay. please do. So when Pete asked me to do this podcast, it kind of like really, I was surprised. It was shocking. And I felt I'm not surprised I, at all. Thank you. You've <laughs> said that before. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> but I don't view myself the way other people view me. 
I think that's common for a lot of us. And mm -hmm. so I was, it was really a, like a major step outside of my comfort zone to say yes to doing this podcast. And we did a few episodes and I found it was fun. You know, we were having a good time. And then we, he wanted to do a topic and I felt like I didn't know anything about that topic. And so anytime we would choose a topic that the other didn't know, we just would agree that the one who felt most confident would lead the conversation. And it was a really good way of doing things. And so I'm, I'm the one that listens. Well, I'm the one that does all of it now, but at the time, my, my role in the podcast was to make the show notes. So I had to listen to all of the episodes to write the show notes. And this particular episode where I was convinced when we were finished recording, it was, I felt terrible. I felt like he did all of the work and it, it was a slippery slope downwards. I'll just say, mm -hmm. I listened to the episode and I contributed. I knew what I was talking about and I laughed and I had no memory of that. So I learned through that, that sometimes our brains lie to us and, um, that I don't know, it was just such a, a life altering moment for me. And I feel like that is a gift that Pete gave me through asking me to do this podcast mm, that, um, beautiful, you know, we don't always remember things the way other people saw them and, Correct. um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's just. I think that's just the way life is with us as humans. It is. You're right. We're, we're definitely harder on ourselves. And I think nerves get in the way of that, you know? Oh my gosh. When you're nervous or you're feeling like anxiety, like all those things just get forgotten or lost all those good things that you don't realize have happened. And well, because the blood flows away from the prefrontal cortex, which is what we need to be functioning yes. to think yes. clearly. Sometimes that is, yeah. that blood is yeah. gone. It's lost. <laughs> I need to get it back. <laughs> so, yeah. I know. Well, that's why the, I think that I love your strategy of taking the pause because the pause, it's very effective for me. And I think we can all, you know, take that moment to just say, oh, this isn't going as expected. Let's reground ourselves in the moment and mm -hmm. decide where we want yeah. to go from here. I think we did a good job talking about that topic of confidence. Good. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. So thank you for sharing your, your personal experience and your, your wonderful insights. Um, thank you for having me. This has been definitely, like I said, nervous, but good. It's outside my box, which is a good thing. Yeah. It's very good mm -hmm. to stretch ourselves. And I, I appreciate you coming here so much. I know something else that um, I found another article that I mm -hmm. wanted to refer to. It talks about a community of practice as a way to learn information and promote scholarship, promote community. And it can also help us to feel more confident in our practice, become more cohesive with others around us and build that professional confidence. The name of the article is Enhancing Occupational Therapist Confidence and Professional Development Through a Community of Practice Scholars. And this is another one that I couldn't get the actual article to, but I will post the title and author information in the show notes. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up is because you and I have talked about study groups 
and mm -hmm. starting a study group and looking at our own state licensure requirements and mm -hmm. we do have an international audience so i i'm not you know familiar with how other countries structure their continuing competency information but i know like we've looked at north carolina mm -hmm. where you live we've looked at new york where i live and our states allow for continuing education through study groups and i get jazzed anytime i get to talk to another ot which is why i love doing the podcast you know and one of the things that we had talked about was starting a study group around mirror therapy i have another uh, person who reached out to me and we're starting a study group on modified constraint induced mm -hmm. therapy and it's a way for each of us to get into the research and actually look at studies videos multiple educational types of modalities or strategies the way people learn and figure out a way to implement that into practice and i personally i don't know how you feel about this but I love the idea of learning with others because then I don't feel it's not as scary to me, you know, because I have other people to bounce ideas off of. Yes, I 100% agree with you. I love um, small groups because it's non intimidating, hopefully non judgmental. I mean, I, I would imagine a lot of people are having the same mindset. You have a smaller group of people. It doesn't feel as scary as if you're in a large group of people where there's just so many different personalities and so many different levels of education and competence and all that. And so I think starting small is great. And I also think you can learn more in smaller groups. You can get more intimate and get more detailed. And I think it just warrants for more time to really master what it is that you're studying. Yes, mastery. Good, good word. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I know, like, I wanted to bring this up because I know that a lot of people have ideas and want to take their practices to another level. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to throw that out there as an idea for people to do. It's a nice way, I think, for clinics to build relationship through professional study. And it's nice. I know some states encourage multidisciplinary mem membership mm -hmm. for study groups and um it's it's more it's a simple way because everybody has to take their own notes and through our own note taking we learn i know for occupational therapy the national board for the certification of occupational therapy also allows for continuing education through study groups so i mean it's just an idea for people who might want to do something to build community. And then the other thing is, I just want to throw out there that we, through Noggins and Neurons, are starting some study groups. And they are paid study groups. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great. And I think along with study groups, you know, it's forming small groups, like you were talking about bouncing ideas off each other. If, if you're creating something or you're wanting to do something, I think small groups is a great way to kind of start and say, Hey, this is my idea. This is what I'm doing. What do you think? Do you think this could work? Cause what better than a fellow clinician or someone even in a different discipline to bounce that idea off and say, Hey, I think this could work. I think you could do this. I think you could take it here. Or you know what? I'm thinking maybe you should try and modify it or cause those are the people that are going to be using 
uh, those types of things. So get the real feedback and start small in small groups and get ideas and get feedback. And I think that's another way to kind of bring some clinical community is talking about what's new out there. What, what ideas do you have? Cause I feel like people have so many ideas of things they want to create, but they're scared to do it because it's intimidating. What if it doesn't work? What if people laugh at my idea? Well, put it out there, put it out there with a small group of people that, you know, will appreciate what you're trying to do. Yes. And speaking of ideas that people put out there, I just put out my idea for study groups. I know that you are working on a piece of adaptive equipment and we've talked about it. We've, we've exchanged a lot of ideas about it. I love it. And I know that you have shown this to some of the people that you work with. So I wonder if you want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just, I find it's a piece of, um, it's a piece of feeding equipment that would help, uh, to increase independence with self-feeding. And I just found that when I worked with some people, sometimes we go in and their positioning isn't how we as clinicians would like it to be so that it's safe, so that it's effective. Um, so sometimes it makes it difficult to see what you're eating or to obtain what you need on your fork or your spoon. So I just started to create, I did a 3D model um, and worked with a great gentleman who helped me create this. It's kind of like a flat board that has an incline ability. So you can take it from zero degrees up to about 20 degrees, which right now is a little high, I learned from experimenting with it. But it allows people to have decreased pronation that is needed when scooping their food. They can visually see it better when it's on an incline. And it has a couple little hooks that will lock the dish into, into place so that the plate isn't moving and that you can bring it up enough to their eye level where they can see it. And I also like it because it does have degrees on there. So it can be used as a piece of objective data for measuring. So if you're working on pronation with someone and improving that, um, or if you're working on, you know, neck extension and trying to get them out of a very flexed position, I mean, you can use this tool to decrease the amount of incline that they need. And that's what we want. We want to be able to get them back to a neutral space for self-feeding, but sometimes they need that little bit of incline to improve their ability to scoop their food independently. So it's still in the works, but I love the idea. And what I would do is kind of tilt people's dishes up when they were eating, if they couldn't see very well, or they were having a difficulty scooping. And one of my coworkers was like, that's a great idea. And I said, well, funny you say that. I said, I've been thinking about this for a while. She's like, you need to do this. You need to figure it out. So I've been playing around with it and um, I still have a lot of work to do on it, but I definitely think there's some potential to help with improving self-feeding. And I think there's a lot of people out there that probably have amazing ideas. And I think for a while I got so blocked and scared and intimidated to try and do this, that that prevented me from moving forward. And I finally just said, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm just tired of thinking about it and not doing anything about it. And it was my coworker who kind of uh, put me over the edge in a good way to say, just do it. And I finally did. And I just, 
I'm so happy I'm, I, I did it. And I was so happy to see my vision come to life. And I'm so excited to see where it can take me once I make modifications to it. Cause it definitely is a work in progress, but yeah, it's cool. And I think, I think there's so much potential for other people who want to do the same thing. And if I can just say, just do it. Don't, don't be stuck in your head anymore. Life is way too short. We all know that. So do what makes you happy. Do what makes your profession happy and just, just dive in. I love that. And there is a really good feeling that comes oh my from taking a step. Yes. You don't even, you don't have to come to completion. Like that step that you take makes you feel so energized. So it's like, it takes the weight yes. that's, that you've been carrying around because it's in your head off. And then there's a level of energy like that feeds your soul when you do that. Oh, definitely. To to think that there's something that potentially could work for a patient that you developed and they may find some use out of it and it may help them be more independent. Like, I don't know. It's just exciting to think that there's, that you develop something, you know, you think about like, okay, who developed the, the long handle reacher who developed the socket, like all these great ideas. And you're like, it's so simple yet so effective. And it's like, wow, how, there's so many ideas out there. And I think they just need to come out of people's heads and, and into paper and then into a real piece of plastic 3D equipment that can be trial. Yeah. The thing that I love about your piece of equipment is that it, you talk about it from a compensatory method and also within rehabilitation. Yeah. So you've got, you've got the degree measurements on there so you can measure progress if someone is making progress and, um, it, it compensates for something that they don't have right now, or maybe they will always need a compensatory measure, but it's, um, it's very useful in that way. So I'm excited to, to see the finished product. I know I have seen some pictures, um, but I'm excited to hear more as it unfolds. And we definitely will keep Noggins and Neurons listeners updated on the progress of this device that I don't even think it has a name yet, does it? Um, it's a name in progress. And um, I haven't decided yet, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm on to one, but I'll leave that for another time. But yeah, I'm, um, I'm excited about it. So right now I've, I've just started using it in the geriatric population. And I actually haven't had a chance to use it as much as I'd like, because I went out for some shoulder surgery. So I've been out for a little bit, but I plan to try and reintegrate it. And I also think that eventually this can be used outside of the clinic in homes when people go home, or if a caregiver just needs something to make feeding a little bit more um, easier, a little bit more independent for their loved one. And eventually I think it will be great also to use with pediatrics, just making dishes, making it be able to accommodate smaller dishes or bowls. And then I'd also like to even take it further for low vision. So right now, because it's just a prototype, it's a cream color, it's like a white color, but I think that making that into a yellow or red would be beautiful for people with low vision so that you can see the contrast of the white plate on the background. Or if you want to use a colored dish, you can, as long as they can still see what they're trying to eat. So either way, it, it has some potential for sure. So I'm excited to see where it's going to go. I love it. And feeding 
being able to feed oneself is, I think that's a highly valued occupation to many people and can become a dignity issue. Absolutely. Food is such, we, we, if you think about food is so important across every ethnicity and every, every culture. I mean, that's what brings people together is foods and eating. So I definitely believe that allowing people to have every opportunity to feed themselves with independence is really important. I love this. And I can't wait to learn more as this progresses. So definitely keep me updated, which I know you will. Thank you. I will. Mm -hmm. So we're winding things down now. And I want to thank you so much for spending a lot of time uh, talking today. I really, I've enjoyed our, I always enjoy our conversations, but thank you for joining me. And I have one last question for you before we say goodbye for now. So my question is, we, we talked about clinical confidence, clinical competence, learning, mentorship, grace, giving ourselves and others the space to learn. So with all of that in mind, my last question for you is, what is one thing that you're committed to learning this year that will improve your practice or make your practice different? Let's see. One thing I'm committed to learning that will make make my practice different. I think because of the conversations we've had, and I didn't realize how much it kind of impacted me as a clinician or, or affected me so much is I'm going to try very hard to learn about things that are going to be significant for my patients. I want to, I don't want to be afraid to learn a new modality or a new technique because I haven't done it before because I don't have the time, but I don't want to just choose something to choose it. So I think picking, being, putting, picking a couple new things this year that I feel like will be effective for my patients um, is something I'd like to focus on. Maybe even learn them for my coworkers because I have some great, very smart, intelligent coworkers. All of them are. Um, but you know, I just, I think that's what I want to do. That's my goal. And to do it with grace Yeah. because I can be very hard on myself. So do it and be okay with where I'm at with it. I love that. And I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you. Oh, it's my fault. Cause I always talk over people. It's a terrible, terrible, yeah. terrible thing that I do. <laughs> no, I was just going to say the thing that I love about what you just said is that you're being mindful about it and you're going to look at at your uh, clientele and determine what is needed there. And that's how you're going to choose what you will learn. That's mindful. That's the word. That's a better word. Just be mindful. Mm -hmm. It's mindful. And I I think it's good clinical reasoning as well. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Noggins and Neurons. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited and I'm, I'm so blessed to be your friend and on this podcast and you're amazing. This podcast is amazing. Pete is, uh, was, Pete is amazing. Yes, and Pete is amazing. Yeah. And you're going to take this 
wonderful places. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Thank you. I'm excited to have been a part of it. That's a big deal. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.